Lecture 23, Learning Across the Lifespan. Last lecture, we talked about different interests. People differ in their interests, and that does influence learning. People also differ by age, and we've hinted at the role of age differences in learning here and there throughout the course. We've mentioned, to name just a few examples, age differences in executive function, age differences in the ability to learn source information, age differences in who benefits from discovery-based learning, and age differences in openness to experience. But age hasn't been our primary focus in those cases. In this lecture, we're going to centrally focus on the role of age in learning. So let's start by recapping a few principles from across the entire course, because these few principles are going to be our starting off point for thinking about how learning might differ at different ages. They're going to let us frame our thinking about age differences so that we come away with more than just a kind of hodgepodge list. So principle one is that learning is not the same as development. Sometimes both learning and being able to use learned information, though, depend on development. And principle two is that learning is related to information processing and abilities associated with information processing. And by that, we mean attention, working memory, and executive function, those abilities to plan, to flexibly change strategies, and to inhibit distractions. And the third principle is that learning is related to prior learning. Learning new things relies on and it builds on what we already know. And finally, a fourth principle is that learning is related to what motivates us and interests us, and that includes our general interest in learning new things, our openness to experience. It's easier and it's more enjoyable to learn things we want to learn, and when we find learning to feel easy, our sense of competence motivates us to learn more. Now, if we think about these four principles, it gives us a framework for thinking about the role of age in learning. So let's start with principle one, which goes all the way back to the first lecture of the course. Development is not learning, remember, because in this course we're thinking of development as what happens in similar ways for all healthy people, with relatively little dependence on specific experiences beyond what you'd expect as typical for us. So examples of developmental phenomena include the growth and development of the frontal lobes, which enable executive function. And that growth and development happens from infancy through early adulthood, ending in the early to mid-20s. And the decline of executive functions is also linked to changes in the brain that happen with aging, particularly in the frontal lobes. So these are developmental phenomena. But the role of the frontal lobes in enabling executive function means that these developmental changes are going to be important for what people can and cannot, or at least can't easily, learn at a given age. And that brings me to that second principle. So principle two is this idea that learning relies on information processing and associated abilities. And as I just noted, those abilities mature, and they can take a while to do so. At ages when those abilities are not mature, they actually limit some of what kids can learn. It's also the case that those abilities decline across adulthood. That is, as people age, they become less able to juggle information in working memory. They're less able to engage executive functions to do things like inhibit distractions. 
And in fact, studies looking across childhood and adulthood, beginning as young as age six, show that people are at the maximum ability in their mid-20s for most of these basic cognitive capacities that are important to learning. Now, that's especially true for speed of information processing. We're never as fast at taking in new things as we are in our late adolescence and early adulthood. Speed and these other basic cognitive abilities actually often begin to decline after early adulthood. Now, principles one and two together point to a very important issue about age differences in learning. Developmental differences in information processing abilities constrain or enable more effective learning at different points in the lifespan. Now, young children's learning is constrained by their relatively immature cognitive abilities. And elderly adults' learning is constrained, even among healthy older adults, by age-related deficits in those same cognitive skills. There is an absolute wealth of research on older adults' verbal learning and other kinds of explicit, deliberate learning tasks like learning lists of words. And virtually all of this work shows that older adults perform more poorly, on average, than young adults. But as with other age differences, it's actually important that we ask whether an age difference is really due to aging or development, or whether some other factor, like the different everyday tasks and environments of older versus younger adults is actually what's explaining the difference. So if older adults and younger children are worse than young adults at learning lists of words, is it because of developmental changes in the brain, or is it something about the amount of practice that young adults, and perhaps especially college students, get at memorizing lists? So one very important landmark study of this phenomenon was done by Paul Baltus and his colleagues. And what they decided to do was to look at verbal learning in a way that tested the limits of older adults' performance. And the results are actually very instructive for those of us interested in learning. What they did was to first recruit a group of older and younger adults. And then they trained these individuals to use a specific, really effective mnemonic strategy for learning lists of words. It's called the method of loci. Now, in this method, participants associate words on the to-be-learned list with specific locations using vivid visual imagery. Everyone was trained, everyone got practice using the method until they didn't get any better. Now, at this point, we can already draw one conclusion from the study, and that's this. Older adults were quite capable of learning that new strategy for wordless learning, and they were very capable of employing that strategy. And when they used the strategy, they learned the words much better than at their initial baseline test of word learning. However, now Baltus and colleagues could look at people engaged in learning lists of words who were all using exactly the same optimal learning strategy and who all had an equivalent degree of training in using that strategy. And what they found was that although older adults benefited enormously from the new strategy compared to their initial ability to learn the words, the best of the older adults were well below the worst of the younger adults. Now, it is not often that when we compare groups of people on some cognitive task, It's not often that we don't have a lot of overlap in the two groups. So this is a very unusual finding. So in other words, when Baltus and his colleagues matched older adults with younger adults, gave them the same strategies and the same level of expertise, 
they still performed more poorly at a verbal learning task. And this is very strong evidence that it is age-related, biologically-based changes in basic information processing capacities and the underlying brain structures that are limiting learning performance among older adults because we've matched some of those other experience differences. Now, a further twist on older adult cognitive abilities also warrants mention here. Older adults' more implicit learning processes, what we've been calling System 1 in earlier lectures, those appear relatively preserved from changes relative to capacities like those for working memory and executive function. So as an example, let's think about motor learning of dynamic balance. In one study, older adults were asked to stand on a platform that was oscillating. And unknown to the participants, the oscillation was following a pattern. Now remember, we're actually pretty good at picking up these kinds of patterns and making use of them to help us perform actions, even when we're not really aware that a pattern exists. So later, participants came back, and they were tested on their ability to balance using that same oscillation pattern, and they were also given a test of whether the skills would transfer. So participants got better at balancing in spite of the oscillation, and they did so at the same rate that younger adults got better. But there is a lot of work to be done. As we noted in the lecture on learning commonalities, it's not clear whether implicit learning processes are one mechanism or many different non-conscious mechanisms. And in the latter case, it could be that some implicit learning is adversely affected by aging, while other implicit learning is spared. Now, aging is not the only place we can pick on in the lifespan, so let's briefly think about how age-related differences also constrain children's learning as well. The findings we reviewed earlier indicate that working memory and executive function abilities show significant growth over early childhood. Do age differences in working memory help explain differences in kids' learning? For reading, for typically developing kids, yes. Kids of the same age with higher working memory capacity show higher reading performance because reading draws heavily on the ability to hold items in mind and put them together to understand texts. So even though children may be equally good at recognizing phonemes and decoding individual words, if they are developmentally behind or ahead in working memory capacity, it will affect how well they can learn to read at a given age. Now also note that we think of kids as excellent learners, and we have this idea despite their cognitive limitations. So the fact that there are cognitive limitations associated with aging, too, doesn't mean that we should get pessimistic about the possibilities of truly lifelong learning. Now, principle three is that prior knowledge matters. When we think about age, different age groups have different levels of prior knowledge on which to draw when they're learning new things. Now, mostly it's helpful to have more prior knowledge, but as we also noted, it can sometimes be a problem for people because if prior knowledge is incorrect or if it leads us astray, as in the case of language, we sometimes fail to incorporate information into our existing beliefs and ideas or to acquire new features of a language. Now, if we take aspects of IQ, like vocabulary and general knowledge, as reflecting acquired learning over time, as reflecting prior knowledge, study after study after study shows that the older the research participant, the higher, on average, their scores on these kinds of IQ measures. Longitudinal studies, which follow the same people over many years, also show growth in these assessments into old age. 
In fact, some studies suggest we don't really begin to decline in a significant or meaningful way in these abilities until after age 70. As we get older, we know more, and that means we could have more prior knowledge on which to draw in learning. And we're particularly likely to know ourselves more. One interesting place where this age advantage and prior knowledge might play a role is in allowing older adults, as compared with younger adults, to make more efficient decisions. And by that I mean a decision that requires less information but is equally good. So you can think of this as being like getting more bang out of a little less learning in some sense. And this is especially important because older adults have somewhat reduced information processing abilities, and that makes a broad search for new information a more difficult and demanding task in later life. Now, decision-making studies often look at occasions where people have to choose between two or more alternatives, and they're able to search a variety of available information in order to help make their choice. Now, the decisions that get examined in these studies range from relatively controlled and artificial choices that are presented to people in a laboratory, all the way to real-world significant choices, such as the kinds of breast cancer treatment choices that patients make. Now, a recent study looked at a wealth of studies, this was a meta-analysis, of older adults' decision-making across studies of consumer choice. Now, consumer choice falls somewhere in between the extremes I outlined above in that it's a real-world decision that has consequences for people, but it ranges from trivial choices like choosing what toothpaste to buy to more significant choices like choosing a medical treatment to purchase. Now, in this review, the findings suggested that overall, older adults consider less information than do young adults. And the difference looks something like this. Generally, older adults look at about 56% of the available information, and younger adults consider about 65%. This is not, as you can already see, a really big difference, but it is a consistent difference, and it's consistently there across different studies. Now, the authors also found that the differences in age groups' information search weren't the same in all studies. And when they looked at why this might be, what they found was that Older adults and younger adults look most similar when they're making health decisions, and they look the most different when it's non-health domains. And this might have to do with motivational issues, which we'll consider in more detail later. Now, less information could be good or bad. If the result is that older adults make poorer decisions, then less information is bad. If the decisions reached by older and younger adults are similar in quality, then less information is good. This is about efficiency. Now remember, the idea is that prior knowledge might reduce the need for information searching, resulting in equivalent decision quality for older adults despite looking at less information. So one way to test this is to use computer-based simulations of decisions And these are based on the way that older and younger adults search information. So when you do this, what you're really doing is you're asking a computer to act like an old decision maker or act like a young decision maker in terms of information search. And then you ask the computer to follow various models for making its decision. Those models can rely on lots of information or on relatively little information. And what you learn when you use this approach is that the decisions reached by the computer under be old or be young conditions are virtually identical. There are tiny differences that favor young adults, but the greater information search identified in studies of actual decision-making 
really doesn't result in a big payoff in terms of decision quality. One of my favorite, though somewhat poignant, examples of this is in a study of decision-making about breast cancer. And in that study, 75 women who were recently diagnosed with breast cancer were surveyed about their treatment decisions. And it turned out in this study that older women sought less information, as with many of the studies above on decision-making, But older women made equivalent decisions to the younger adults, and they made them actually more quickly. And what these findings suggest is that prior knowledge may help older adults make good decisions on less information than younger adults in many circumstances. In this case, we can really think about the importance of prior knowledge because the women with breast cancer really need to draw on prior knowledge about themselves and their preferences and their lives and how the different treatment options would impact those things. Principle four is that motivation and interest matters. And as we shall also see today, motivation varies over the lifespan in ways that are importantly connected to learning. Now, most generally, we talked about the fact that openness to experience declines in later life. And this decline is found longitudinally when we compare individuals to themselves earlier in their lives. And it's also found cross-sectionally when we compare people at one age to different people of another age. It's also a pattern that has been found in virtually every country that has been studied, and there are many countries that have been studied in this way. So that general age-based change is consistent with the idea that as we age, we may be less interested in learning new things. And that is also consistent with the decision-making work that I just talked about. Now, one well-established perspective on adulthood and aging, socio-emotional selectivity theory, suggests that we're also going to be motivated by different aspects of our worlds as we approach the end of life. Laura Karstensen and her collaborators argue that we have at least two major motives as we go about our daily lives. One is an information-seeking motive, and this is that curiosity drive that we discussed early on in this course. The other is an emotion regulation motive, and we might encapsulate these as finding stuff out and feeling good. Now, Carsonson points out, though, that the availability of new information and its utility to us may diminish over adulthood as we become older. Why? Well, for one thing, as noted earlier, we tend to know more as we get older, and that means there may be less out there left to learn. And for another, the available new information in the world is of less utility and relevance to us as we get older for at least two reasons— First, when we've established our lives, we often know the information and skills we need for living those lives. And so remaining things to learn are somewhat less needed. And information also has more long-term payoffs. So the pursuit of a college degree, for example, is is a rather lengthy process. It involves a fair amount of work and significant economic costs. And the payoff is a more long-term thing. It involves lifetime earnings potential. And in the short term, actually, people go into debt for college degrees. As people approach the end of life, Karstensen argues, they may be less interested in pursuing something that doesn't have an immediate reward. Well, what has immediate rewards? Emotion. Feeling good is a payoff right here and right now. Karstensen has argued, and she's shown in several studies, that as people get older, their relative emphasis on new information versus feeling good shifts. Emotion becomes more important and more salient. Now, the perspective of socio-emotional selectivity theory has spawned 
a wide range of investigations, and these include explorations of social activity, personality changes, preferences for products, and everyday emotional experience. Some of this work has shown that older adults, as compared with younger adults, make different choices about possible people to spend time with. They prefer close friends or family over interesting strangers. But when asked to imagine themselves with a great deal of healthy lifetime left, they go back to being interested in meeting someone like the author of a book they enjoyed or a new and interesting person. And young adults in situations that limit their time, an impending move or a serious illness, shift their social preferences towards familiar and close relationships. Now, even this shift has to do with learning. As Carstensen notes, the author of a book or an interesting new stranger offer a greater opportunity for learning new stuff. They're more likely to know things that we don't already know. But by contrast, someone we've known for our entire adult lives is likely to be a lot better at helping us to feel good, to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel loved, and to feel connected. They may not offer us nearly as much in the way of new information or new perspectives, at least not as much as that more unknown and unfamiliar person might. Now, the relationships between making choices about who we spend time with, the warm and familiar, or the new with the potential for learning, as I just expressed it, is a theoretical one. And that is that the studies that test social partner preferences, who I want to spend time with, don't really test actual learning of new information. Other work, though, does so more directly. And in that work, the kind of increased focus on emotion, on managing feelings, that characterizes aging also appears to change people's ways of paying attention to new information, of learning that information as reflected in memory, and ultimately even the way the brain is responding to information depending on how emotional that information is. Age-related differences in attention, learning, and memory have been labeled the positivity effect. And briefly put, The positivity effect is one in which older adults, as compared to younger adults, pay more attention to emotionally relevant stimuli and especially positive ones. They learn positive stimuli more effectively than negative stimuli, and they recall them better. Now, the positivity effect has been shown with pictures, words, texts, autobiographical memories, and with measures of attention, memory, and even brain-based responding. The fact that positive and emotionally relevant information draws more attention from older adults can actually compensate for some age-related losses. For example, there are some very clear deficits in source learning in later adulthood, but some types of source recollection don't show any differences between young and old adults, and not surprisingly, perhaps, it tends to be those that involve more emotionally relevant cues to source. Now, adolescents in contrast to older adults, are highly motivated by information. And you can see this when you look at a phenomenon known as the reminiscence bump. And this phenomenon is one in which our learning of songs, news events, television shows, movies, and even the experiences of our own lives is actually enhanced in this period of life. And the way we know this is that if you ask people over the age of 50 to recall various kinds of memories, songs, famous faces, personal experiences, they are disproportionately likely to remember things from the years between 10 and 30. And in fact, adolescents 
and young adults, exploration and risk-taking is something of a cliché. Adolescents explore even to the point of taking serious risks and of experiencing hurt and pain in order to learn and find out about themselves and their worlds. This is not only true for humans in our stereotypical understanding of different age groups, it's also actually true of rats. One of my favorite recent studies actually looked at the exploratory behavior of teenage rats compared to adult rats. And the goal of the study was for the rats to learn to poke into a hole to get food pellets. But they could only poke the hole every so often to get the food pellets, and other times it didn't really work. And adolescent rats in this context, they make what are called task-irrelevant pokes more than adults, and they're more likely, especially when they're hungry, to run around an open enclosure and explore all the options available to them in that enclosure. So... To summarize, when we consider what learning is about for people of different age groups, we can look at age differences in information processing abilities, in prior knowledge, and age differences in motivations and interests. And when we do this, we get a distinctly different picture for different age periods in the lifespan, distinctly different for childhood, adolescence and early adulthood, and for midlife and beyond. Childhood is about the simultaneous processes of development and learning. And in childhood, those processes are hard to separate. Development constrains what kids can learn. But it's also probably fair to say that kids are like sponges. They're highly motivated to learn, and they're constantly learning, because so little is prior knowledge for little kids. Adolescence and young adulthood, by contrast, is about maximum information gain. Information processing abilities are at their lifetime peak during this age period. The motivation to learn new things is also still very high. And in contrast to, to kids, prior knowledge is also probably at a good basic foundational level that can facilitate learning. Midlife and beyond is a time that's dominated by the issue of maintaining what we've learned and maintaining the capabilities that we've acquired in earlier parts of our lives. This is the time when we can capitalize on what we already know, we can shift our goals a bit, and we are vulnerable to cognitive declines that are going to affect basic information processing abilities. Now, these declines can constrain our learning, or they can make it take us a bit longer to pull off the same level of learning as a young adult. Now, before we leave middle and older adulthood, I want to focus on some factors that actually appear like they're going to help us preserve information processing abilities to the extent that that's possible into late life. Now, there's an important caveat here. Pursuing these actions can preserve our ability to learn, but there never guarantees that research findings about people on average will work for you as an individual specifically. So I have to underscore that point. You can try these things. They have many benefits. They don't guarantee that you're going to preserve your cognitive abilities without decline. But the good news is that the same things that preserve information processing abilities also contribute to other aspects of living a long and healthy and happy life. So there are a lot of reasons why doing these things is a good idea. So the first one's really simple. Get some exercise. Both cardiovascular and strength training exercises appear to help preserve information processing abilities. Um, and people think this is probably because they really enhance blood flow in and outside the brain. 
Even mild exercise like walking is a great thing, and there are studies of weight training interventions with even frail, nursing home dwelling elderly adults. Another thing is to keep mentally active in meaningful ways, and examples of this include all kinds of continuing education efforts, great courses, DVDs, and CDs, elder hostel, volunteering efforts, and community involvement. And finally, it may be useful to try to learn something truly new every so often, something radically different from the usual things that you do. Try a new dance class, try a sculpture course, try to learn a new language. And again, this should be something that's meaningful to you and enjoyable, not a punishment, but more of an effort at staying open and curious and at maintaining cognitive flexibility. Finally, researchers interested in ways of maintaining learning into late life do caution against current commercial products because while some of these computer games could turn out to be useful at maintaining information processing abilities, most are untested and it's an unregulated industry. Meaningful and established activities are available without buying expensive software. Unless, like my husband, you're an avid gamer and if you'd simply enjoy those computer games, knock yourself out. Next time we'll bring all the lectures together to think about the big picture of how we learn that I've tried to paint for you in this course. We'll consider some new directions in learning research, how what we have learned in this course can be applied to optimize our learning, and what implications we can draw for the teaching side of learning.